Hey friends, welcome to the Addiction Nutritionist Podcast. I'm Kelly Miller, nutrition therapist, health and wellness recovery coach, and certified nutrition nerd. On this podcast, we talk about all things health and wellness and recovery. We talk about pause and nutrition for post-acute withdrawal syndrome. We talk about biochemical repair and amino acid therapy. We even get into food addiction. We want this platform to be your number one resource for creating health and wellness and recovery so you can stop self-sabotaging habits for good. If you're tired of feeling stuck and you're ready to take action and learn how to build healthy habits and recovery, this podcast is for you. When you recover well, there's just no oxygen for addiction to survive. Let's create wellness together and start today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Addiction Nutritionist Podcast. I'm very excited to have my guest here today, Helen Diveston. She is a registered nurse and life coach who specializes in nutrition for mental health. So as you can imagine, totally in alignment and very much up our alley. We have so much wonderful information to share with you today, and I cannot wait to get into this discussion and formally introduce my guest to you. But for now, I'm just going to say, Helen, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you giving us your time and sharing your wisdom with us today. Thanks so much, Kelly. It's an absolute pleasure being here today. Oh, wonderful. Um, I'm going to share our food sponsor today, which is kale. Thank you for choosing kale. Surprisingly, we have not covered kale yet. Such a wonderful, healthy food. And then after that, I'll read Helen's bio and we'll get into this really great discussion. So kale, wonderful, wonderful kale. Kale has been around for a very long time. It's a member of the cruciferous family. So that's going to be in addition to things like broccoli and cauliflower and that sort of thing. I thought this was interesting. It's actually a descendant of the cabbage family. So it's a member of the cabbage family, but the way that I read it being described was it was a descendant of the cabbage family. So I guess it's like a a child or or something of the cabbage, which is really interesting because that was our uh, food sponsor for the last episode and one of my favorite foods. There's a lot of different types of cabbage or excuse me, kale in the States. And I'll ask Helen about this because I'm curious too. In the States, we pretty much just have like the green or the purple version and sometimes it's smooth or curly. So I'm curious if in New Zealand, you have a different type, Um, but the most common type of kale here, we just refer to as curly kale or Scots kale. It is packed full of nutrition. We've got vitamin A, we've got vitamin K lots of vitamin C, which is really important. Um, Going back to vitamin K, which is great for blood clotting, just one cup of kale would give you about 70% of what you need for the whole day. So that's probably one of its highlighted nutrients. It also has folate and B6, very important nutrients for mental health, as we might even discuss today. Lots of potassium, magnesium, and even some iron. And just to highlight the fact that The vitamin C in the kale allows the body to absorb plant-based iron that's in the kale. And so it's really important that those two nutrients are present together because they work synergistically to help you absorb that iron, which I think is really, really great. Um, But kale also has a lot of antioxidants. Two in particular that I'm going to highlight, one of them is beta carotene, which will often convert into vitamin A. It's it's sort of a different form of, of vitamin A or the precursor to vitamin A. And that, that's a very important um, antioxidant. And then another one called quercetin, um, which is really important for boosting immunity and actually also combating things like allergies. It has a lot of different functions, but I thought those two in particular were worth mentioning. Lots of anti-cancer benefits to those antioxidants. 
And there have been studies that have shown a correlation in a reduction of risk of really specific types of cancer and quercetin, which is in kale, um, like breast cancer, bladder, colon, ovarian cancer, and even in liver and lung cancer. One of the other things that I thought was really important about this antioxidant is that it has shown protection, and we're going to talk a lot about prevention and protection today, um, of things like Alzheimer's and dementia. So eating kale can potentially protect your brain from cognitive decline in that way. So it is really important. Um, and actually, some studies even showed a potential to reverse some symptoms of Alzheimer's. And that's a really controversial thing. And some people will tell you that that, that's, that, that is not possible. But I've read quite a few studies that at least suggest that it is very possible. So I think it's important to, to highlight. Something else that kale has is something that I think a lot of people are hearing about a lot more. I'm hearing a lot about it on like the radio and people coming out with really specific supplements for this. It's these two nutrients called lutein and zeaxanthin because we have found their massive importance in eye health. They've been shown to reduce risk for macular degeneration and also cataracts. And so uh, lutein and zeaxanthin getting a lot of highlight these days. Uh, you don't necessarily need a supplement. You could take one if you want, but you could also just eat kale. Um, and then the last thing I'll say about kale that I thought was kind of fun is kale's been around forever. It's been a staple in a lot of diets around the world, but really more in a seasonal way. But because not so long ago, probably in the last decade or so, kale sort of had an explosion onto the scene and people really got interested in quote unquote clean eating. So in a lot of places where you might've been only been able to find it for a month or two, have extended its availability to even you know, nine, 10, 11 months, or even all the way throughout the year in some places. Um, and so I I thought that was really cool. I would love to hear about what type of kale is most common in New Zealand real quick. And then if you have a, a way that you prefer to consume it. Well, Kelly, I have to say I was a very early adopter of kale because my parents bought kale over from Holland. So they're from, uh, immigrated from the Netherlands. And when I grew up, my very favorite meal was what we called bora cold, which was kale mixed with potato so we had mashed potato and kale and um unfortunately served with a with a dutch sausage like a worst on top so if you had asked me when i was six what my favorite meal and my favorite food was it was kale it was kale and mashed potato oh so I've been eating it long before it was popular. Now we um, grew the curly kale. So we, my father actually grew the curly kale in the garden. It's super easy to grow and it, um, it winters really well. So it's a great winter vegetable to have if you're in a, in a cold area. It's one that survives frosts. In fact, they usually say to wait until you've had a frost and then it's actually sweeter and um, it's less fibrous and, and that it sort of is not so difficult to chew because when the quite new they're very chewy and fibrous mm. to consume oh. so yeah interesting i've never met a child who states that their favorite food is kale so you may be the first now adult former child who has shared <laughs> that information for sure um i appreciate that so much and i when i consume it i love to massage it with all, olive oil and lemon and garlic and that sort of thing because it really does soften it up I, I enjoy the firmness of it but i also like to be able to chew it easily so 
Yeah, thanks for introducing us to the highlighted benefits of kale. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read your bio, and then we're just going to get into this. So um, Helen holds over 15 years of experience working as a registered nurse in acute psychiatry in Auckland, New Zealand. She also spent five years working at a holistic health center in Auckland City while establishing her own business, one Life, which offers speaking, consulting, and education about mental health. Helen is a guest lecturer at Auckland University, where she lectures on nutrition and mental health for postgraduate nurses and is trained in mindfulness for health practitioners, which is also a core part of her practice. Helen believes that to be truly well, the mind, body, and spirit all need to be engaged. She has a strong passion for supporting and empowering people in their mental health journey outside the conventional medical model of medication and talk therapy. Her focus includes nutrition and lifestyle medicine alongside, alongside psychological techniques to enhance and support mental well-being. Along with being a registered nurse, Helen holds an advanced diploma in nursing, uh, the specialty area being mental health, and a master's in health science and an, and an advanced certificate in general nursing. She's also a certified life coach, um, and she also holds lots and lots of other cer certificates um, in all different realms of health and wellness and nursing and that sort of thing. So, um, so excited to have you today. We connected through a group forum and a shared passion, and when we had our pre-call, it was immediately obvious to me what a wonderful guest you were going to be and all the great information that you could share. Um, I asked you to share some of your resources with me, and that's when I found out that you were one of the keynote speakers for um, the Mental Health Nurses Symposium in Auckland, New Zealand, and I was able to access your notes that you gave for that speech, and I was just like, yes, 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 so much good stuff here. Uh, we're absolutely in alignment with what we are passionate about and trying to accomplish. And I love that you are really focusing on educating the nurses because they're the ones on the front line of this, right? Like, you know, we, we as people who are in this space of coaching or mental health therapists or um, people who have family members struggling, we all need this information too. But I, I think changing the hearts and minds of nurses is going to be key to making progress. So I'm just so in love with the idea that you are on the front lines of that education piece and, and advocating for this. So so first, let's start with your background a little bit, because you didn't just jump out of the gate uh, knowing about nutrition, using nutrition. You did enter into the space of mental health nursing, but that looked very different for you for a long time as opposed to what you're doing now. So if you want to share that journey with us and how you ended up here, I would love to start there. Yeah, fantastic. Um, it was quite a journey too. I think as many people experience when they completely change, I felt like at that time completely changed career. So it was about uh, 2014 or so, I had been working in psychiatry in South Auckland and acute psychiatry, so very much at the forefront, um, assessing people post self-harm, admission to hospital, deciding whether what sort of treatments they needed, ad organizing admission to psychiatric units if necessary. And I'd been doing that for a number of years. And this one morning, we used to meet every morning and discuss all the people that had come into the general hospital the night before and, and who needed new assess assessments and, and what the plan was going to be for them. So we were discussing the people that had come in the night before. And I remember sitting there and, and we were talking about, you know, the names and their diagnoses. And I just remember thinking, 
you know, these people have been in last month and six months ago and a year ago, and what they were, what we sort of refer to as the revolving door clients. They would come in, they would get, you know, assessed and, and some treatment put in place, but then they would be sent home. Clearly they weren't getting better and then they were coming back again. So I remember just sitting there and looking at the names on the board and just thinking, oh, what are we doing so wrong? Like this is, what we're doing just isn't working. And um, it was a bit of a shock to me because I, I sort of thought, I, I just, I don't think that we're doing well, you know, and here am I, I was a so-called expert in my field of nursing at that time. And I, I remember sort of standing up and heading over to the window and I actually started to get really tearful. And I thought, oh crap, <laughs> you know, this is here I'm sitting with all my colleagues. And um, so I, I just sort of busied myself in the corner, pretended I was doing some filing or something. The meeting ended and um, I sort of knocked on the door of one of the psychiatrists who, who were all very good friends by this stage we'd been working together for many years and I sort of knocked on the door and and she said yes and she sort of looked at me and she said oh you know are you all right and I said I I uh yeah, I think I need a break I, I just I said I don't know I can do this anymore and she was like oh you know um so straight off to uh that what we call EAP which is an employment um, assistance program so I went to go and see someone to talk to and um, I said, I think I just need a couple of weeks off. You know, I just need to, to figure out what this is all about. So I took some time off. I went to see my GP. I went to see the occupational health doctor. Um, I spoke to them. I said, I don't, I don't quite know what's going on, but I just, um, I, I, don't, I don't feel I can be responsible for making serious decisions about someone. And I actually went home and I rested a lot and I thought a lot and I didn't feel depressed. I was quite happy sort of pottering away in my garden, but I, I was just overwhelmed, I think, after many years of psychiatry. And so I took a bit of annual leave. I took all my sick leave. And then I eventually I sort of went back to work and sort of had a meeting with the managers and said, look, I think I need another few months off, leave without pay just to kind of gather myself. And in and, and retrospect, of course, I was completely burnt out, but I didn't know that at the time. And um, they said, well, no, we're not going to give you leave without pay. And I said, well, I'll resign then. And I'd actually been working for that, that um, district health board for 19 years. So I handed in my resignation and I thought, what on earth am I going to be doing? You know, I've been a nurse mm -hmm. for 25 years, I think, by that stage. And um, so I just, I took some time off and I actually, what I ended up doing was traveling. I went overseas. I spent eight months traveling. And then in the last few months, I thought, gosh, what, what am I going to do? You know, I, uh, I'm a registered nurse. I really love mental health, but I want to do it differently. Like I'm, I just don't think we're doing it well. So I started to research and read and join every organization I could find that was looking at mental health from a sort of a more holistic model so I just you know I was doing integrative medicine I looked at how we build resilience I looked at how we build happiness what keeps people well you know what does it mean to be truly mentally well and um, that sort of led me on the journey of actually reading and learning about how much nutrition and diet had a place to play in mental health because 
I was reading all these articles and I was like, hang on a minute, nobody has ever talked to me about nutrition and psychiatry. It has never been discussed apart from, you know, we would sometimes ask people, you know, how much coffee are you drinking if they weren't sleeping? Or, you know, are you having um, energy drinks? You know, make sure you're not having energy drinks. But apart from that, we really wouldn't dive into their diet at all. It just wasn't something we mentioned. And I was getting, I was just, I couldn't believe it. I was like, am I missing something? Where, why are we not bringing this into our practice? So um, a couple of years later, it was 2016, I went over to Australia and I, because I was like joining and going to conferences and everything I could possibly do. So I went over to Australia and it was the first time that I heard uh, Professor Felice Jacker bring up her information. And so for those of you who know Professor Felice Jacker, she did the SMILE study and I think that's what sort of um, put it into, into fame in some ways. So the SMILE study was a study done on, I think, 67 people that were experiencing depression. So they were diagnosed as being clinically depressed, having moderate or severe depression. They split this group in half. They gave half of them a modified Mediterranean-style diet, and half of them had social support for the same sort of length of time. After three months, they reassessed all the participants in the study. And what they found is that those who had changed their diet to a modified Mediterranean diet, 30, almost a third, so it was 32 point something percent of them were no longer depressed. So mm. they, were, they were not suffering from depression anymore. They were, they, and I remember listening to her give this presentation, and I'm not even sure it had been published then, it was in the very, very early stages. And I remember listening to her and sitting in this audience and sort of like looking around, just seeing if anybody <laughs> was like, you know, eyes wide and mouth dropped. And like, this is total game changer. Mm -hmm. Like, are you meaning to tell me that if we took all the depressed people in New Zealand and we changed their diet from a Western diet to a modified Mediterranean diet, that a third of this depressed population would no longer be experiencing a depressed mood. Mm -hmm. So that was, to me, totally mind-blowing. And I also then sort of started to think, because New Zealand has quite high suicide statistics, especially for our young people, actually. And to the point that I think it's almost highest in the developed world. Our young mm. people, it's very, very high. So I just started thinking about that as well. And I was like, well, surely that that would decrease our suicide statistics as well, because obviously depression is one of the leading causes or contributing factors to suicide. So I just had all this spinning in my mind. And I was just like, I, I need to go down this route. I need to look at, at other research. What else has been done? What mm. else can I find out about this? And then how can I bring this into my practice? And it, so from there, I started to think, I know what I want to do. I want to do mental health, but I want to do it from a holistic perspective. Mm -hmm. I really want to start educating people about how important our lifestyle is. So, you know, food, especially, but also looking at things like movement and 
Also, there's so much research now about sleep and rest and how we can actually modify our lifestyles to significantly improve our mental well-being. So mm -hmm. that's kind of how I became a general sort of, you know, a, a psychiatric nurse to really sort of going on this uh, different journey into health and well-being. Yeah. And that's such, it's such a wonderful story. And it's the funny thing to me is that I have heard story after story after story from, from very similar folks who are in working in sort of the traditional treatment or conventional model, whether they were a doctor or a nurse or a, a mental health therapist, they have sort of that moment where they came across this new piece of information or something ignited something in them. And they were like, we've been doing this all wrong, or maybe something to the extent of we're missing something huge, but there was a major turning point for everybody that I've spoken to um, that has, you know, made a change in, in their, the way that they practice or their career or whatever. Um, and it was interesting because I was reading through your notes um, for the keynote speech. And I remember the point where you came to where you talked about the smiles trial, which I remember as well being like, wow, this is, critical information. And also a lot of folks out there will compare it to the fact that only about a third of the people who take antidepressants, um, actually, it actually works for them also. So it's, if you take the third of the people who antidepressants work, and then you take this other third who the, you know, the diet works, and then maybe you have people do both, we could dramatically improve, uh, you know, reducing depression and all of that sort of stuff. But there was something that jumped off the page at me when I was reading your notes. And it was when you were talking about sort of that looking around moment where like, did everyone just hear what I just heard? And that excitement that was ignited in you. And you thought you literally had the thought of like, this changes everything, but yeah. it wasn't that long before you realized this isn't actually changing anything. And I imagine you started to realize pretty quickly that this was falling on deaf ears, that there was a lot of pushback, that there would be so many tremendous barriers to changing oh. the narrative around this. Yeah. I'd love to hear what sort of things you have come up against. It's been, it's been so interesting. So I've spent many years really sort of learning all I could about this, this subject. And then in 2021, I think it was, I went back to my old job. So I'd left, left nursing completely. I worked in a holistic health clinic. I, I was building up my own business. So I had complete time away from um, the general sort of medical model of nursing. And then I was kind of shoulder, shoulder tapped to come back to my old job just for, just for six months. Uh, to cover someone's maternity leave and initially I was like oh, I, I don't I just don't think I can do it and they, they convinced me to come back and so I went back and uh, I spent 18 months of course uh, close to 18 months working there for what started was, was supposed to be six months it had changed in some ways the actual job so I actually I mean I actually really enjoyed being back and I felt so much more empowered actually going back because I had so much more information to share with people but when I went back and I sort of was talking to the psychiatrists and the nurses that I work with I said um, you know so why, why do you think we don't discuss nutrition as part of a treatment plan when somebody comes in or when we see somebody with any actual mental health disorder 
And the reply I always got was, there isn't enough evidence. You know, and I was just like, what? <laughs> and I said, so oh my gosh. have you not heard of like the SMILES trial, for example? Because I was like, well, everybody's heard of the SMILES trial. Well, you know, everybody. And they said, who? I said, you know, Felice Jacker, the SMILES trial. No. The Food and Mood Center. No. So I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I've got a lot of work to do. I was really stunned. And so one of the first things I did when I got back to my old job is honestly I'd only been there a week I think and I did a presentation to the entire sort of our little department so um, it was just it was psychologists psychiatrists and uh, nurses within the hospital in South Auckland so I gave a talk to them and then a couple of months in I also managed to speak to the psychiatrist they gather once a week and they call it the journal club and it's only the psychiatrists and nurses can come along but nurses would not normally present there I managed to get a slot to present there as well which was um for me quite a big thing mm. and I presented you know all my information there about how nutrition can impact mental health um both from food but also you know supplementation and, and vitamin deficiencies and mental health and all that sort of thing and that sparked an incredible uh, amount of discussion as well, because once again, I hadn't really thought about it. Oh, mm -hmm. it's not really something we've thought about. That, and I just want to interject. That's the part that makes me bonkers because the data is there. You know, you mentioned in your um, notes, study after study shows the correlation between poor diet and poor mental health. And so I've mentioned this on the podcast before, for those of us that are in this space, we sort of feel like we're just screeching from the rooftops, like the data is there, the evidence is there, we have collected, well, there's much more that needs to be done, but we for sure collected enough. And, yes. and it's so easy. It's not another, it's not necessarily another supplement or another medication. It can can just simply be as easy as up-leveling quality protein. Are you even getting enough protein, including some more fruits and vegetables, right? Like this is not rocket yeah. science. And it doesn't have any side effects. This is the other thing. It's not like we're introducing something that has the yes. potential to do harm. Yes. There is no known side effects that I know of, I've ever heard of through research, about introducing more fruit and vegetables and good quality protein into a person's diet. There is nothing bad about it. There is only good that's going to come out of this, both mentally and physically. Maybe a little bit of gut discomfort if they haven't been eating vegetables for a long time. But yeah, but really who doesn't even have that, you know, on a regular basis anyway? Yeah, yeah it's true. So, yeah, it's amazing. I'm always amazed that there's just this sort of, I don't know what it is, Partly, partly they don't know. And then even when they do know, that's kind of this, oh, I don't, they're just, they're, they're, I don't know. Honestly, it, it drives me a little bit crazy. I do. I, I attribute a lot of it to ignorance. Like you said, I, 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 they're not getting the training and their schooling that they're doing and nobody seems to be sort of bringing the information around. So I do allow them grace in that area, but it's the part that you just mentioned that I can't seem to wrap my head around where the, when presented with the studies and with the information, there's that bit of a shoulder shrug. And I can't seem to figure out if it's got some sort of personal defensiveness uh, somewhere or if it's just if it wasn't pre presented to me at university then it's not credible like I can't seem to wrap my head around yeah. it 
There might be a little bit of that. I think what the other thing I do come across uh, quite regularly is how to implement it. So mm. it's one thing to tell somebody, oh, yes, you need to eat more vegetables. But actually, as we know, that doesn't that often does fall on deaf ears if you're if you're talking to to clients or especially patients that are significantly ill, you know, they're just battling day to day. So this isn't going to be a priority for them necessarily. So I think there's also that that difficulty in how to implement it. And then I also do hear from some nurses, well, we're not dietitians. You know, we don't want to step on dietitians' toes. So I do hear that as well. And I think once again, it's about not really understanding about how basic actually this all is. And I and I sort of explained, and you would have read in that talk, that in New Zealand, for example, we have we have national dietary guidelines. They're very simple. It looks like the plate, fruit, there's fruit and vegetables on, mm. on almost, I think, half or three quarters of the plate. And, you know, and so I'm I'm like, this, this is it. You know, this is what we what we as nurses are allowed to advise because it's the national guidelines. We're not yeah. we're not stepping on anyone's toes. This is what it is. So I think there is something a little bit of a block about implementing, but mm. I think once we understand that when we if we can empower people, and this is what I think is so exciting in my mind about lifestyle medicine is that people feel empowered to do something if, if when I speak to someone that's really struggling with their mood and I say look this is what the evidence suggests that if you change your diet and you can really sort of beef up your your vegetables and your good quality protein and your and you know that sort of thing you are likely to have an improvement in your mood and feel so much better and sleep better mm-hmm. and it's amazing I'm amazed at how many times you know the person will come back and say oh yep I cut out this and I've you know I've really tried to add some more of this and other things as well like yes I'm walking every day now and people get excited actually and and really do feel empowered that they can make changes and I'm just like this to me is medicine this is about empowering people to actually take responsibility for their own health and well-being and it's amazing and it's so wonderful to see really really yes and that's such a great point because i do think there's sort of a general belief out there that maybe people people won't change their diet or they won't be interested um and and certainly there are those people that might have some some barriers or some preconceived notions about doing that. But I, my experience has been the same as yours, that if you give somebody the right tools, they're like, okay, I can do that. You know, like I can take a walk, I can drink a little bit more water. You know, we're not saying, Hey, here's a whole long list of dietary interventions that you need to adhere to. It really is as simple as saying, you see that plate on the wall that the government put up there. Now I can't say the same for the U S because our plate is a little dysfunctional, but maybe New Zealand's plate is different. Um, but it, it can be that simple. So, so that's just incredible. Um, it is. You know, I would love, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just saying it is, it's wonderful. It's yeah. I love, I love that bit about people, you know, getting it and, mm-hmm. and, and working well, I have specific questions sort of about, um, you know, studies, case studies, nutrients, blood testing, and all that sort of thing. And I'll kind of go through that one by one, but before we transition to, into that, I would love to hear if there 
you know, are you seeing any sort of change in the tides? You know, you did this, you, you know, you were one of the keynote speakers for the, the mental health nurses group. Did you get any sort of feedback from that or even just um, an inkling that people are sort of starting to perk up to the information? Um, do you think that the implementation piece is still a massive barrier and that maybe we need to figure out that piece next before we can really get this information into the hands of those that can, that can implement it? It's a very big question, actually. Um, I do feel that there is a movement and I do feel that there is a groundswell, but it's, it's a small number of mostly, so, you know, GP, I've had a few GPs contact me or, or had contact with them. Um, there has there's a couple of psychiatrists that work within this model. There's a couple of psychologists I know that work within this model, but there's not like a massive sort of uprising from what I've seen at all yet. But it's a bit like, I really feel that my job is just to keep chipping away. And, you know, if I bring one more person in that is like, oh, look, I'm really interested in this, you know, and one more, that's, uh, that's how it's got to happen. And this is why I love educating the nurses, um, both through the university. So when I, when I give that lecture, I'm just like, you know, this is fantastic. This is an amazing opportunity. And I think I'm, I do a lot of them via Zoom and I think on one of them there's, there was close to a hundred students or something. So I'm just like every single one of you is going to, you know, mm -hmm. take this information with you. This is going to support you no matter what you decide to do in the future. You know, you are going to have this knowledge that you're going to be able to bring into your practice. So it's, mm -hmm. it's a very, very slow, very, very slow process, but I do feel it's happening because I do think that overall there's a, Ooh, um, there's kind of this frustration with the medical model and that is coming from from the from the ground floor you know that really is coming from the people the patients who are feeling let down I think in many ways that the medical model is wonderful if you have an acute injury or an acute illness but if you have a chronic illness, if you have IBS, if you have a mental illness, if you have you know, diabetes or metabolic syndrome, the medical model just isn't really very helpful at all. So um, mm -hmm. I think that for a lot of people, they themselves, the people themselves are wanting to take things in their own hand, but still quite slow to address the nutrition side of things. I really do mm -hmm. think there's this, oh, what, what difference does it make? I, I don't know. And I think in some ways, I think some people think they know it all. Like they think, oh, yes, of course. Well, I just need to do, you know, I know I need, I need to eat more vegetables and that's it. But when they really, truly understand how this all works and how much it makes a difference and, you know, the difference between the different sorts of fats and oils, for example, and how trans fats might contribute to poorer mood, more irritability, then I, you know, if they understand the depth and the the importance of it I don't know what the quite the right word is that they really do they would grab it and go okay I'm doing this because this is my yeah. life you know and yeah. I want to enjoy I want to enjoy my life and live the best yeah. life can, so yeah, I love that. And I, I see the same thing when I'm doing sort of um, group coaching or webinars, I'll do a lot of talks for alumni groups, for treatment centers, you know, for addiction, 
And I love to go through the pieces of why the nutrition works and how it works and the the connection between the brain and the neurotransmitters and all of that, because you see people's faces light up and they go, Oh, because it's exactly like you said, they, they sort of know they need to do a little bit better, but they don't really understand why. And when they see those connections, literally that light bulb goes off and they go, this makes sense to me. And I even will leave them. I'm like, even if this is a little bit confusing, you're not totally bought into it. You're maybe just a little bit curious. I'm like, you don't have to believe a word I say, go try it, go try, pick one thing on this list, go try it for a week. And come back and tell me you don't feel better. And I I tell you every single time, they're like, I literally just increased my protein. I cannot, I cannot even count all the different ways people have come back to me and said, I feel better. I feel more grounded. I feel less scattered. I'm lifting more in the gym. All of these different ways that people in just one week will come back and say, something's different, you know? And oftentimes if the information wasn't enough, that personal experience is enough for them to find that motivation to keep going and looking for new ways of improvement. And I just also want to touch on something you said, because I think it's important that that chipping away, it Mm -hmm. it is important. It is, it is slow. It is slow, but if you change one nurse's perspective and she arms herself with these tools and goes back to her clinic and sees her patients and she shares this information with 200 patients and 13 of those patients decide to take her information and all of a sudden the hallucinations go away, the depression lifts, the suicidal ideation resolves. What a dramatic change for one person's life. Yeah. So even if we are, yeah, it's slow and it's chipping away, it can still have profound impact on one single person. And when one single person gets well, you can see the profound impact on that person's immediate circle, right? Their mother, their father, their sister, their brother, their coworkers, their friends, their children. So it really does have a ripple effect. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I was, I actually, one of the, one of the cases I was sort of going to talk to you about was a, I think he was in his thirties and he had a diagnosis of uh, schizophreniform disorder and had been unwell for many years and on significant amounts of psychiatric medications. And his mother actually called me and he'd been under the mental health system for many years. And she just called me out of the blue and said, I'm just wondering if you wouldn't mind seeing him. I was a little bit shocked because I thought, you know, don't want to step on anyone's toes, already treating him. But I said, yep, absolutely. And I saw him for a few sessions and he had a lot of difficulties with his gut and his bowels and he was quite obsessed about this and it would keep him awake at night and he was always worried about his stomach and what was going on and got quite anxious and I sort of did a few assessments with him and I did some mindfulness with him and relaxation exercises and then I got him to do a food diary a food mood food diary Mm -hmm. actually and I got him to write down all his symptoms and all his food and I just I was looking at it and going through it with him and I said you know what you have a lot of dairy in your diet and I see just some people sometimes that really upsets their their gut. We know that there's a reasonable percentage of the population that are lactose intolerant, let alone casein can be a problem with some people. 
I said, how would you feel about trying to go dairy free for a few weeks and just see how you feel? The change in him was so significant. Like he started sleeping at night. The whole anxiety about his gut decreased significantly. They, they reduced his medication. I mean, it was just incredible the difference that it made. And I actually just checked in with his mother um, a couple of days ago, because I haven't seen him now for mm, two years, perhaps. Mm -hmm. They discharged him from the, from the medical system after a while. They, they discharged him completely. So I thought, oh, I'll just check in and see. And his mother said, he's really well. And she said he's um, not on any laxatives or any, anything for his bowels anymore. He's off clonazepam, which he was on a lot for his anxiety. I don't know what else he's on, but I was just like, hmm, this is amazing. Yeah. And I was like, I'm so happy. You know, this is, wow. you know, she's got her, in some ways, she's got her son back. Yeah. So, and you know, what's funny about that too, is even just the mere suggestion of going dairy free. Like if you say, oh, maybe it, maybe, and they say, oh, well, they're not lactose intolerant. So why would you do that? Like, it, it's just so black and white. Like if it's not this, then it's not, it couldn't possibly be contributing. And we don't necessarily know why dairy bothers some people so much outside of that, you know, lack of enzyme. There are other reasons it irritates them, causes inflammation. As Absolutely. we know, as you and I know, inflammation yeah. is deeply connected to depression, systemic yeah. inflammation is. And so we'll hopefully discover all of those exact mechanisms of action over the years, but it is well-established that for a certain group of people or a certain percentage of people, it is just dairy. You know, sometimes it's dairy. Sometimes it's dairy and gluten. Sometimes it's just gluten. Sometimes it's something else, right? Yeah. It's just oh, such so low hanging often. fruit. No. Yeah, absolutely. To me. Oh yeah. It, and I've had, dairy is one of the most common ones, actually. I've found that quite regularly. I had another woman that came to me she was about to be put on antidepressants by her GP because she was irritable a lot of the time. And um, we worked a little bit with her diet and sort of, you know, a little bit of psychological stuff as well. And once again, got it to do the food, food made diary, brought it in, said, hmm, you know what? And she said, oh, I don't even like dairy. She said, I don't like milk. But she was having cheese in her diet at least twice a day. So she would just, you know, cheese on her soup, cheese and toast, cheese and lasagna, cheese. Mm -hmm. And I said, look, just, I know this is a bit random, but have a go, you have a lot of dairy. Um, just try, you know, omitting it for a little while. And it was quite funny because she said, oh no, milk upsets my stomach. <laughs> so I don't really like milk. So I was like, mm, there might be something in there. So once mm -hmm. again, took her off the cheese two weeks later she was like oh my goodness I am like a new woman I am not irritable anymore and then she said a couple of weeks later I called up with her and her, her and her husband had done a road trip and they stopped at a cheese factory and she had some cheese and she said within an hour she was like and her husband said what has got into you and they went oh the cheese so they really had yeah and so for her I, she's emailed me as well she said total totally life-changing for her she said it, it's sad that I've had to give up cheese but she said I feel so much better I oh mean that's it's random isn't it and I don't want to blame dairy for everything because it's not of always dairy not. 
but yeah, it's I'm dairy. It seems to be fine for me. Yeah. But just like you said, there are quite a few people that just cannot, and their their relationship with that food for whatever reason can have such a profound impact on mood. And it all goes back to that question of like, why isn't the very first question we're asking is tell me more about your diet and what that looks like, and just using some of these low fruit um, hanging options in in as a first line of defense before we hand out the pills, you know, like, Hey, why don't we mess around with this for a couple weeks if you're willing to. And if you come back in a few weeks and things are just as bad and haven't changed, then maybe we talk about medication. I just hate that medication is a first line of defense. And I realize there are very acute situations where it is necessary. But in some of these cases where somebody just feels like, you know, I've been really depressed for like a year. Um, I'm not suicidal, but I'm not feeling great. Spend two weeks on your diet, you know, first. It's just... It's crazy. Um, okay. Let, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear if you have any sort of really specific information about certain nutrients or which ones might have major impact, or, um, you know, we talked a little bit about just removing dairy, but are there any nutrients that you would like to highlight and talk about the critical importance of, or any information you can share about deficiencies and their relationship to mental health? Huge topic. And it's it's a slightly confusing topic, I think, as well, because I think I would love to say that there are certain vitamins that specifically help with mental health. And I do think that there are. But I also believe that vitamins work in synergy. And mm. to simply say, oh, you've got a whatever vitamin deficiency, this is what you need. It, it's hopeless as we know there are specific cases obviously like vitamin b12 deficiency is a is a very obvious one low iron is a very obvious one zinc is another one that i think is very important to consider there is a lot of research about low zinc magnesium however and oh of course there's the all of the b vitamins so When I think about if there are specifics, what I generally go to first is a broad spectrum multivitamin because I think it covers the bases and I think it's safer than simply giving one nutrient and expecting that one nutrient to just go and do its stuff because it's going to rely on other nutrients to metabolize and methylate and all the other you know the other things that happen within ourselves so just to sort of say oh you know here we go here's your one nutrient off you go I always start with a a broad spectrum multi then if necessary I will add on some specifics and the specifics might be something like zinc or a B12 if they're very low in B12. The other one I would always go for, of course, is the good old omega-3s. So the omega-3 fatty acids, because that has also been shown in research to be wonderful for um, depression and also irritability. There's sort of the irritability, the the, um, imbalance of omega-3 to omega-6 oils, that seems to be an issue. So if it's it's another case study actually I had of a, of a, Interestingly, a partner of a, I think it was in his late 20s, rang me. She said, I'd really love for you to see my my, my partner. Um, he really struggles with his mood and irritability. 
He had been seeing a psychologist for over a year, or I think it might have been a psychotherapist for over a year, made an appointment, emailed him. He said, yes, that's fine. I'll see you then. He didn't turn up to the appointment. She did, had a big talk to her, to kind of assessed her to assess him. And I sort of said at the end of it, I said, look, there was no major trauma, no significant life issues. There was nothing that I could get that was bothering him from a psychological point of view. And I said, I really think this is coming from somewhere else. This is what I suggest. I said, just as a baseline, you know, you could, you could try some high dose multinutrients and omega-3 fish oils. Got in contact with her a few weeks later. They didn't get the multivitamins, but they just started with the fish oil. She said, he's noticed a significant reduction in his irritability. And she said, so have I actually. So we'll keep going and we'll go and get some multivitamins as well. I never heard from them again, but. Wow. You know. Um, yeah. So interesting. And, All this time doing psych psychological work and actually, you know, let's, mm -hmm. what else is going on? Yeah. And you bring up such a great point, that synergy piece. And it, because I do, I will often tell people when they ask me that very same question um, at at the, if, if it's possible, the best possible thing to do is build up the diet first. Um, or even if just, yeah, taking some nutrients while you're building up the diet, because there are these nutrient complexes that are available in food that the body will be using in such a completely different way. I do believe that vitamin and mineral supplementation can be important and incredibly useful, um, but it just can't be a solid substitute for having a strong foundation in your diet our body interacts with those nutrients in a completely different way, all the way from just simply trying to digest them initially sending signals to the brain of what's present in the, in the stomach, you know? Um, so that is such a great point, but also I love that you brought up omega-3 because it, to me and what I've seen, I use a lot of uh, B complex multi magnesium um, and omega-3. Those are probably the top supplements that I use in addition to individual amino acids. Um, but omega-3 is the one that seems to have such far reaching implications for what it can treat everything from ADHD to like you said, irritability to cravings for drugs and alcohol. There's a study that shows it can increase dopamine production by up to 40%. And oh, it wow, seems to be one of those unique nutrients too, that is primarily available in fish. And so many people are not eating fish. I mean, especially if you're not coastal, right? I live in Colorado, which is like in the middle of the West of the United States. And a lot of us feel landlocked and we can't, don't have that much access to fresh fish. And so it does tend to be one of the nutrients I find is easily to, uh, to supplement with people. Um, if they're not willing to eat fish or they don't have access or any of those sorts of things, but also just the incredible far reaching effects that it has all the way to, as you know, it has been shown to reduce inflammation specifically yeah. in the brain, which correlates with the reduction of depression. Yes. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The other thing that that's really been shown to be incredibly common as a deficiency in people admitted to psychiatric units is vitamin D. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting because we here in New Zealand consider ourselves to be, you know, in quite a sunny place. And we think, well, how could anybody be vitamin D deficient? You know, we, we're outdoor people. And yet, there was a one study in Hamilton, New Zealand, and it had looked at the people with vitamin D deficiencies in Waikato Psychiatric Hospital. And it was like 74% 
had a vitamin D deficiency or insufficiency. Like, Holy wow, cow. This is incredible. And on top of that, I, I recently learned that magnesium is very important for vitamin D absorption, which I didn't know about. And mm. I was like, well, so is it a vitamin D deficiency as such, or is it a deficiency in magnesium? That, mm. You know, honestly, it just goes on and on and on. But it just reminded me again that actually it's never one thing. No, yeah. there's these combinations. And like you say, always best to get it from food because there is so much in there. Um, but then Absolutely. obviously Yeah, and vitamin D is such an interesting nutrient because we, you know, I've been told you really need to primarily get it from the sun. And then I've been told primarily get it from the sun, but supplement with the diet. I've also read that there's, uh, you know, a theory or an understanding that it's very possible that the body, if it's not getting enough from the sun, will actually try to extract more from the food that you're eating. Um, and yeah, I, I can't prove that. I've just read about it. I don't know. It's, a, but it, it just fascinates me how complicated the body is. And I was just giving a talk last night about healthy fats to a group of women and I was talking to them about how ALA, which is the form of um, essential fatty acids that we would find in plant-based sources, the conversion rate tends to be typically very low, under 10% if we're trying to convert ALA to omega-3, the nutrient that we're talking about. But if you're a pregnant woman, your body massively upregulates that conversion rate. It increases the conversion rate. Yes, because that nutrient is so important for the baby and the baby's brain to develop and that the body knows that it's pregnant. And so it increases the conversion rate. It's just so fascinating, right? That's amazing. That is amazing. I didn't know. I did not know that. Yeah. We are clever, aren't we? Our bodies are clever. (laughs) So clever. So intelligent. I just love it. Um, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about blood tests for mental health, do you feel like this this is a useful thing? If so, are there any in particular that you think could be helpful for identifying anything related to this realm of nutrition, health? Yeah. Ah, uh, gosh. So blood tests is one of those ones that it's a yes and it's a no answer as to how useful it is. It's a yes because I have a lot of people come to see me with depressed mood or anxiety. They've been to see their general practitioner and the general practitioner has not done any blood tests but has just offered the medication. So they come and see me and I'm like, please go back to your general practitioner and ask for some blood tests because the first thing you want to do is rule out an obvious deficiency. And so often people will come back and go, oh, yes, I'm a little bit vitamin D deficient or I'm iron deficient. And I'm like, well, let's deal with that first. So yes, blood tests can be very helpful to rule out an obvious deficiency. So I really encourage people to look, go and, go and see the general practitioner and go and get your blood test done. However, I guess I'm looking for a range that's not necessarily just within the normal range. I'm looking for optimum ranges. So if your GP doesn't give you the results and just says everything's normal, don't please ask for the results, bring them to me and we'll go through them. So in that way, yes, it's useful to look at some nutritional deficiencies. However, and I sort of discussed with with Julia Rutledge, who who you will know, she's Professor Julia Rutledge from from New Zealand, which is Canadian actually, but is mm-hmm. in New Zealand now. We're blessed to have her. She will also she's in their research study. They have found that even with people with nutrient levels well within the normal range, 
they still experience huge benefit if they end up supplementing with vitamins and minerals. Mm -hmm. So just because you don't have an outright deficiency doesn't necessarily mean that you won't still benefit if you were to have a supplementation as well. And you're certainly not going to um, not benefit from improving your nutrient intake from your diet as well. So it doesn't necessarily rule out the fact that you may still be lacking for what you need yourself, of course. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up because bio-individuality is so important. And yeah. it, 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 it's for some people, the buck really does stop there. They go, well, my doctor says I'm fine. And so they might just be, there's that block there where they're not open to hearing I hear what you're saying and that's a normal range, but there are these functional ranges and then there's bio-individuality and then there's genetics and all these things. I did a genetic test that showed I have a much lower rate of absorbing B vitamins and utilizing them. And so that, that exists in the population. Uh, so that's such an important point to bring up. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, there are things there. So we're not just looking at nutrients in the blood. We can look at the, the health of the red blood cells, for example. You know, you know, we want to know that, that they're the right size and that they've got the right sort of the, the hemoglobin. They've got the oxygen carrying capacity. So that sort of thing we can get from bloods as well. We can look, we can make sure that you're not inflamed. You know, look at your CRP and other inflammation markers. So those sorts of things can be very useful as well. So it's not just about you know, ensuring that you don't have a nutritional deficiency. It's about what else is going on in your body. What else are we noticing? That could be a suggestion, perhaps. We, you know, mm -hmm. we're not going to, there is no test for mental illness. You know, we can't, I know. We can't go and say, well, yes, tick, there we go. There's your depression molecule in your blood. You know, there's nothing simple like that. So they are helpful and they're a good guide but they're not the be and end all, you know, yeah. that I think we have to sort of take them a little bit with a grain of salt in some mm -hmm. ways. I, I just want to say one thing before I transition to the next thing. Do, do you have a number for CRP that you like to see it under? I have seen some wild ranges. I mean, me personally, I like to see it under one, but I've had doctors say, oh, as long as it's under three. Another one said, as long as it's under four. Another recent client whose doctor told her, oh, it's fine because it's under seven. Um, it, it, do you have any <laughs> thoughts under on the one. CRP? We say under one. I mean, under one. Information. Under one. Yes, under one. You want to retest it again, you know, because they could have sprained the ankle or, the, you know, it could be anything yeah. that's causing the inflammation at that time. But right. yes, you want it under one, you know. Okay. You Thank you for being in alignment with me on that because I'm like, please, for the love, under one. <laughs> yeah, under one. <laughs> I get so much pushback. Um, okay, great. <laughs> we've talked about the blood tests um, and how useful they are, but I would just like to hear your personal opinion. What do you think is the most useful tool that you're maybe using with your clients to assess what they need? The most useful tool. Other than the, other than the food mood poo. <laughs> If, no, I mean, let's talk about that. You have a free handout, which I will have the link in the show notes. You have this wonderful resource called the Food Mood Pood, which I just love. I also have a Food Mood Journal, but there's not a column for poo on it. So now I've got to go rearrange mine to look like yours because I'm so incredibly inspired. I talk about bowel movements with my clients all the time. It's one of the mm. most fun topics for me. I know it makes some people uncomfortable, but you have all three things in this one handout yeah. and 
if that's the most useful tool than you for you, I would go with that because honestly, it is for me too. Just finding out what are you eating on a daily basis, and then I also use an app called Chronometer. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but Chronometer is like super easy for people to input their food in there, and then it just very easily highlights the nutrient deficiencies. But honestly, the Food Mood Journal would be even just the first step before doing that because you, you as a practitioner, I imagine you can easily see the patterns. You can just yeah. see okay, they're skipping breakfast. Okay. Their lunch is um, a protein bar every day or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just yeah, yeah. the major holes in the nutrition, right? Yeah. And, but what I love about it is that the patient or the client themselves starts to see, yes. oh, I had pizza last night. My stomach was really upset the next day, or, you know, I, I didn't eat breakfast and I sort of had a whatever for lunch you know donut whatever and by three o'clock I was exhausted and I was grumpy and you know they start to see it themselves and that's what I love sometimes I don't even ask to see it I'll just say tell me what you've noticed you know tell me from looking at your chart what have you noticed oh well I noticed that when I had dairy and gluten together I had loose bowel motions later on that day and I didn't Mm -hmm. realize that that was what was happening and why it was so intermittent. So they start to see the correlation and then they say, I know, I know, I know, you know, they know themselves. That's what I think is so empowering about that. Yes, that's literally the word that popped into my head, empowering, because that that really is what it is. You're there to sort of show and guide and, and, and equip them with those tools. But there's nothing better than when you see them making those connections and they and sometimes they feel bad about it because they'll be like, why didn't I notice this before? You know, and it's like most people don't. Most mm. people are very busy. We're living a very yeah. fast paced life and we don't stop to go. Where did this stomach ache go- come from? Mm. Especially if you get it every single day, you just go. I get stomach aches, right? You yes. become the person whose identity is I get stomach aches. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I absolutely. Or I, I get loose. Oh, I've got IBS. Yeah. You know, how many times have I heard someone say, well, you know, I've got IBS? And I was like, well, okay, but that's there's something causing that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like, have you ever wondered why? <laughs> you know, why? I. I love to share the story that when I was in high school, I'll never forget it. You know, when you're young, a teenager, you feel quite awkward. And I remember going out to lunch with my friends every day. And every day after I ate lunch, I felt sick to my stomach. And I I have visceral remembering of sitting in that seat and sort of sweating and thinking, I want to ask my friends if it's normal to feel sick after you eat, but I don't want to ask them that because that sounds weird. And what if they're like, you're weird? No, that doesn't happen to me. And it's just like a silly teenage sort of mentality. But I remember that so vividly. And it took decades later for me to get super ill and realize that it's because I was eating bread every day and I'm gluten intolerant. And so it's like just silly things like that, you know? That's incredible. And I think helping helping people to normalize that it's not normal to feel sick all the time. It's not normal to have a headache every day. It's not normal to have a stomach ache every day. It's not normal to have joint pain every day. These things aren't normal. And all that you really need is to help them to move to the next step is to ask why, why, if it's not normal, then why, and where do I start? You know? Yeah, I, I just, yeah, it's very powerful. And then, cause what I'll often do, if they do change their diet, obviously I say, keep going with the food mood food journal because now I want you to, to see the changes and what you notice. 
and mm-hmm. and it's it's great it's it's a it's a lovely little tool mm-hmm. simple it, it it is it's so simple and it's free on your website so we'll put it in the show notes um you know that was really all of all of the questions that i had for you, but I'd love to hear if there's anything else that, that you would like to add. I'll sort of end it with, you know, I will often share in my speeches and talks and that sort of thing that the world health organization has deemed depression as the number one disability on the planet. And you had mentioned in your keynote speech that, um, there, the, the WHO's definition of depression is a bit dry and maybe needs to be revamped a little bit and include some other things that, um, maybe just spruce up the definition and give people a little bit more hope of what's possible. So, um, I'd love to hear if you have any final thoughts about that, or if there's anything else that you would like the audience to know and then I'll um, turn it back to you and and ask you where we can find you and we'll wrap it up there thank you I think one of the things I really wanted to sort of talk about is that so many people when we mention the word mental health or mental well-being their mind immediately goes to mental illness Mm. they think about depression or they think about suicide But in my mind, mental health is exactly that. It is mental well-being. It is living a life that you love or that you enjoy. It doesn't mean you're not going to have ups and downs, but it's a life that you feel resilient and you feel passionate about. And so many people feel that they don't need anything to do with mental health. You know, they, they they won't engage or listen to anything mental health related because they don't have mental health problems. Or they, what they mean is that they, they, they're not mentally ill. But I just, I think it's so important to understand that the things that you're talking about and I'm talking about, they're for everybody. This is about well-being. This is about living your best possible life. And I, that I'm so passionate about that, that people really start to embrace this. This is this is life. This mm-hmm. is coping well. This is coping well when the shit hits the fan. Mm-hmm. You know, how do I best get through this? I look after myself. I nurture myself. And that includes nutrition. That includes, mm-hmm. includes making sure I sleep well. That includes making sure I get a little bit of exercise. It's really about self-nurturing. Actually, it really comes down to caring for yourself enough. Mm-hmm. And I think that is something that I'm very passionate about. That mm. it's not the avoidance of depression or the avoidance of being mentally unwell. It's actually about true mental health. So. Mm. That is so good. I am so inspired by hearing you say that and in in just your you're just pure of heart perspective on all of this. We do need to normalize this as a basic form of self-care. It not, is not necessarily mental illness, like you said. It's just learning how to take care of yourself and cope with life. So I love how you sort of posited as well-being and self-care and just a, a basic part of somebody's toolkit. That's just fantastic. Um, I have enjoyed this conversation so much. Something very physical happens to me when I get into these conversations with somebody that shares my passion, my passion for this topic. And we get to converse in this way and share this information with 
the audience and whoever else comes into exposure to it, I get all these feel good chemicals. And I know that it's like dopamine and serotonin, but I just feel so in alignment in my own life. It's so exciting and inspiring to me to have these conversations. And so I just want to express my extreme gratitude for you taking the time early, early morning in New Zealand um, to be here with me in, in the U in the US where it is late afternoon and actually starting to get stormy. Um, and when you and I had our pre-call, I remember thinking like, where's this conversation going to go? What should we focus on and that sort of thing? And I remember it hit me about halfway through and I was like, we've got to title this episode. It's up to us because it just, this, this conversation and the work that you're doing in New Zealand, it just feels so important on the advocacy part the education part, that chipping away part, like even if we're just talking to one person here and one person there, it truly can make a difference. And so I commend you for your work. I hope that you and I can continue this relationship so that we can um, consult with each other and speak more. And if you ever come to the United States, please let me know. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. I'd love to visit. (laughs) Good, good, good. Okay. So I will put it in the show notes, but can you just tell people where they can find you? And do you take international clients? I haven't had international clients thus far, but I don't see any reason why not. I do run two online courses. So if anybody is interested in any of those, it's a good place to start. One of them is changing lives. It's a very broad, holistic approach to being mentally well. Um, the other one is for mental health professionals and it's on nutrition and mental health. So there's two courses that people can access from all over the world. Apart from that, you can find me on my website, which is www.onelifenz.com. And that's probably the easiest way. I've got a contact form on there as well to get hold of me. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you for sharing about those courses. I think that's really important, especially if somebody was listening here that's in the mental health profession, they can just go grab that course and start educating themselves. So uh, I'll put all that information in the show notes. Thank you so, so much. It's been my pleasure to have you on and I can't wait for our listeners to get access to this great talk. Thank you, Kelly, so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And I'd like to thank you for doing the work that you're doing. I know that this is uh quite probably challenging for you having all these different speakers and a lot of work to do beforehand and it's been a pleasure thank you so much yeah you're welcome i absolutely enjoy it so all right folks see you next time thanks for listening hey friends if you loved what you heard today please consider sharing this episode with a friend post it on your social media give us a rating on whatever platform you're listening from today or give us a review This really helps us to reach more people and give them hope that they too can reach optimal health and recovery. And for sure, head over to the Addiction Nutritionist website to sign up for our newsletter and check out Recovery U at www.theaddictionnutritionist.com. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you feel inspired today to recover well. Quick disclaimer, Nikki and I are not medical professionals in any way, shape, or form, and nothing on this podcast constitutes medical advice. It is purely for educational purposes only. Please consult your personal team of health professionals before making any changes to your diet, supplements, medication, or lifestyle. Thanks for listening.